brought some for you. What? Paper clips. What do you mean? Those are paper clips. This is my weapon of choice. I'm dead serious. I've been working with paper clips for two fucking years. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. Welcome back. Welcome back to episode nine. We're excited about today's episode and we're excited you're tuning in. As always, thanks for listening and uh, remember to follow us on social media and tell your friends. You can follow us on Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Also Facebook, it's at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And on Twitter, it's at Weapon Choice Pod. And don't forget, we'd love to hear your feedback, any questions you have. So hit our email up weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and gotta definitely give a special thank you we started our patreon about a month ago where folks can donate and become monthly uh members monthly donators to uh help keep this show alive help keep it going we really appreciate the support of folks who share who like our stuff and especially these folks who so far contributed i just really want to thank those that have and I want to I want to give a special thanks to Melissa L. We really appreciate your support and your dollars. Um, Alex S. Thank you so much. We appreciate your donation. Carrie M. She chipped in and we are so grateful for that. Catherine B. Your support has helped us. Thank you so, so much. Steve A.R. Helping us out from the get go. These mean so much to us. And then we have Heidi R., also a contributor. Actually, she and her daughter, she contributed on behalf of her her young daughter as well. So we really appreciate that. Julie B., thank you so much for throwing us your two cents. And everyone, your two cents has helped us so much continue uh, this awesome thing that Tommy and I are trying to pull off. So once again, to everybody, thank you so much. Definitely. And if you haven't, uh, if you've been thinking about donating or you'd like to donate right now, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. One dollar or more a month makes you a valued member of our show. We really appreciate it. And you being part of the community. Okay, Uh, so let's get into our interview today. So, Tommy, who do we have for this episode? We have an awesome guest. We sat down with Julie Kearns, founder and finder of Junket Tossed and Found in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Julie has done something amazing, and she has seized an opportunity to solve a social problem and to help other people and to have fun and to be creative and to run a company that aligns perfectly with her passions and values like environmentalism and a whole lot more. And that combo was enough to keep her moving toward a solution in the form of the business that she started, Junket Tossed and Found. What's Junket Tossed and Found, Tommy? Well, Junket happens to involve retail, and Julie has been mightily engaged and a thousand percent invested in cracking the code around 
building a legitimate supply chain for all things previously owned and used. So reusable goods in the name of environmentalism, social justice, and a whole lot more. You know, we're going to get into all that. Okay. Uh, did you know that, did you know that uh, Junket, it's, it's really cool, they have a theme song. A couple of musicians. They have a theme song? Yeah, a couple of musicians made a, uh, a song for the store, Junket, you know, and how do I when listen I, to it? When I think of like vintage reusable thrift, thrift shops, I would never imagine like a store has a theme song, you know, all the good work they're doing. And you know what? You got you, you got to see this. I can't believe all I right. didn't email this to you. So pull up, uh, go on to YouTube, like just pull up Junket Tossed and Found. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's going to be one of the first three, I'm sure. YouTube. There it is. A day in the life at Junket. It's only two minutes. We don't even got to play the whole thing. You should just check it out. Okay. Hold on. Pulling it up. Oh, that's the storefront. That was actually pretty well produced, visually. Brand new day, soak it out the door. We got something you're looking for at Junkin'. Dude, that's catchy. I love it. It's catchy already. It doesn't matter if it's tossed or found. We got the coolest things around at Junkin'. All right. All right, let's. Uh, Ooh, I can I can picture this. I can picture this uh, as a live performance. What you think? I love it. I love it. I it's got me super excited for the interview. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's leave it at that and get y'all right into this uh, awesome interview with Julie Kearns. Here it is, y'all. This is my weapon of choice. I'm dead serious. I've been working with paper clips for two fucking years. Okay, so we'll talk about this today. I mean, this oh, this whole thing is weapon of choice. But yeah. the, so they are. I mean, yes, I talk about paper clips for you a reason. I did all this. I, did all this. I, inv- I invested in. I did the math. I invested in the graphics. I'm now starting to share the work. The work. But yeah. this is about. So this is about mainstreaming reuse. So I want, and that's kind of a like. It's kind of a janky design, but it's um, everything except the sticker and the thread is secondhand. I would like to get to a point where we have secondhand labels and sewing thread as well, but at scale, scaling things is the challenge. Um, But if I sell 5,000 of those, it offsets a metric ton of carbon dioxide emissions compared to buying new ones. As I was getting started with the store, like paper clips were driving me up the flipping wall. How would I sell these? How would I, you know, how do I keep them organized? You know, you know, how like how is this going to work? I'm like, you know, if I can figure that out for paper clips, I could probably figure it out for everything. And so for me, reuse is a climate mitigation. Um, um, and so like, how can we help people understand that? So getting back to the diagram here, um, Americans buy 11 billion paper clips every year, new ones. Like they go to you know, Office Max or Target, and they buy the paperclips, so they buy them on Amazon, you know, and, and none of us think much about it, right? So, mm-hmm. and this is a statistic from um, 2011. So it's, you know, it's a few years old, but it's not, you know, we've gone paperless, right, in theory. And so, but so 11 billion paperclips per year is the equivalent of 34 per person. And that's not a crazy number. Um, but, you know, with 310 million people plus in this country, you know, you start to, like, the math starts to add up. And so those 11 billion paper clips at about a half a gram per paper clip adds up to 5,500 tons of steel. So what we know about steel, and this is EPA data, is that for every ton of steel that's manufactured, 
roughly three times that weight in carbon emissions um, are emitted, right? So, and that's just a production process. Um, and so if we've got 5,500 tons of steel being um, produced into paper clips every year, that, um, that results in emissions of um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 16,000 tons of carbon dioxide. We all know that recycling is like the thing we should be doing, right? Hey, it's good, we're doing great, we're doing recycling. But what we don't realize collectively is that um, if we were to recycle everything on the planet, we would still only achieve a 6% greenhouse gas emissions reduction, right? So what that means is that's not enough, so we need different solutions. Um, and so, but I wanted to understand what is that most virtuous manufacturing and what is that impact? And so a recycled paper clip, so made out of 100% recycled steel, but newly made, um, results in less than a gram of carbon dioxide emissions. So it's significantly better than virgin steel paper clip. But if you just use the one you have, you don't have any carbon dioxide emissions from manufacturing whatsoever. This is that 6% you're talking about. That's the 6%. Okay. That's if you did everything, like if everything was recycled yeah. on the planet, if we figured it all out. And right now I think our global recycling rate is around 9% of everything, right? So if we did 100%, we'd still only get 6% total reduction. So recycling is part of the solution, but it is not the answer. And we're not going to recycle our way out of our climate disruption issue that we have right now. So, but if we use what we have and we recognize that these things are embodied energy, um, all the stuff in the store is embodied energy that we're hanging on to so that somebody else can use it without creating more emissions by buying something new. Um, basically, what that means is that the most sustainable ethical goods possible are the ones that already exist, even if they have to travel via an appropriate transit mode to get to you. There are two major exceptions. Vehicles, because the bulk of, um, the bulk of emissions happen um, during consumer use, right? So after production, after manufacturing. So, um, so a, an electric vehicle is significantly, a new electric vehicle is significantly more carbon footprint friendly than an existing older um, combustion engine vehicle. And the same thing goes for highly efficient um, appliances because those are things where a lot of the, the energy use happens after, um, after the consumer has made the purchase. But for everything else, the stuff in your hands, you know, all of it, the stuff we're wearing, using what we already have is easily the most sustainable solution possible. Um, and there's really no question. We don't have to wonder about it. I'd like to see existing paper clips you know, produced and packaged in a way that gets people excited, like with maybe carbon-informed packaging, where it says, hey, this is the positive impact that you have when you make this choice, instead of the recycled ones next to you or the new ones next to those. So um, yeah. How many paper clips were people turning into you well I'm that, that started this you know so I I had well I you know it was just a matter of how do we make it profitable it wasn't even like it was I'd had you know I had several hundred but the problem was that those several hundred continued to like wind up on the floor and you know and show up in places they didn't belong and it was driving me crazy just trying to get them coordinated and I know I mean that's like it just what happens here is what was happening everywhere. So, like, if, how can we figure out how to organize those and make them um, manageable in a in a in a world where we don't give a shit about our stuff, right? We just we we chuck it and we go. But the problem is that what the way that we treat paper clips is the way that we treat everything. Right. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm kind of a Cra Craigslist addict because if Which I see awesome. something laying around in my house, I'm like. I haven't done anything with that for a month. Somebody get else could gone. do that. Yeah, exactly. Get it gone. Get it gone. Well, and that's you know, and that and that like the the need to purge, the desire to purge, and being ready and willing to do that. Um, that's that's kind of like that is the 
that's what's happening in our time. We've got 10,000 people a day turning 65 in this country right now, and they're all downsizing, and they're all purging, and they're all getting rid of their stuff. And a lot of them lived in, you know, single-family houses in the suburbs with multiple bedrooms and an attic and a basement and a garage, maybe two- or three-car garage. And, and when you have more space, you fill it with more stuff. And now they want to downsize. Their kids aren't living in similar situations. You know, they don't even, you know, the Gen, the, the Gen X and millennials, like especially the millennials, don't really even have the financial capacity to take on that sort of housing debt, nor do they want to. Um, but they also really don't want to have to take responsibility for their parents' stuff when they've chosen not to have a whole lot of their own, right? So, so, so we've got that generation wanting to get rid of their stuff. We've got younger generations not wanting the stuff in the first place um, as, as a whole. And yet, we've still got this rampant consumer thing going where it doesn't necessarily, not wanting a bunch of stuff doesn't necessarily mean that the stuff that you do have is high quality or ethically developed and, or, right? So there are, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Um, but the, the biggest issue is that we are continuing to use limited global resources to manufacture and produce things that already exist. We don't need more paper clips. We don't need more t-shirts. That's actually what we're working to do here with everything. So I use reuse as a design constraint for all of our product. So, um, so the paper clips was one example, but we, you know, we, people still want things that are gifty and that look new and it's still taboo to give things that are used to people. And so that's one of the taboos I'm working to change. So we, we, you know, design and print, you know, stuff with swears on it, but everything that we print on has a prior life. So it is either, you know, their, you know, old huck towels or handkerchiefs, pillowcases. Hey, how, you know, and for me, the part of the challenge was like, some people have an, have an issue with, you know, used this. How can we make that more attractive? Hey, we'll, pr we'll print fuck on it and we'll see what happens. And um, it works. So, you know, so, so, but really it's about making it fun. How do we, how, do you like that? Okay, we, we, we've got to make reuse more appealing than the options that are out there, right? Absolutely. And make, make the most sustainable goods possible attractive to a broader range of people. One of the things worth knowing about up here in our weekly routine is that we do have separate recycle organic and trash bins. Um, so we practice what we preach. Uh, we are not interested in throwing a bunch of stuff away. So unlike a traditional venue that receives donations or a nonprofit or some of those big box folks, we've committed to ushering what comes in right back out the door in responsible ways. So if we don't sell it and we can't recycle it and it isn't, you know, it isn't compostable, it becomes trash. And we hold ourselves accountable to a single household Size or, or you know, in some cases we can we can also donate, but we we hold ourselves accountable to a single household sized waste bin per week, and we're running a daily twenty two hundred square foot shop. So, um, yeah. So we figure if we can model it and if we can do it, others can do it as well. So, practice what we preach and um, and set some examples along the way. So, we push out every morning. We push out all sorts of crazy stuff onto the patio area in front of the shop to let people know that we're open. We've got the open sign, but we also have a bunch of old stuff, you know, old bikes, chairs. We try and keep it bright and colorful and to also allow that to be part of the, um, just part of, this is junket and this is what we do. So, um, 
I will say that we don't bring everything in at night, and that's one of the things that makes us a little bit different because um, I like to let the neighborhood know that I trust them. So we leave a few things out overnight. One, because it's a little less work, but two, it's not gonna walk away, right? Or at least we don't think it's gonna walk away, so we don't need to act like we're afraid of things disappearing. But the other piece is that there's so much stuff on the planet right now that if something walks away, probably not the end of the world. Right? It's found somebody who wants it, and we'll take that. Mm-hmm. So, right? So, um, bigger, you know, bigger outcomes um, in the grand scheme of things. And, and quite honestly, if somebody needs it, that's, that's on them. So, for those listeners who have never been here, could you briefly say what is Junket Tossed and Found? Absolutely. So, Junket is, most people describe Junket as a vintage shop. Our, um, our product mix really ranges towards smalls, toward creative parts and pieces toward quirky, um, but we we work to support makers and doers and and people that um, that are creative in, in whatever way they choose to be creative. Um, so Junket is a retail space with 2,200 square feet um, of, of floor space. And then we've got what I call the nether regions in back, which is just scary. So that's about another another thousand or so square feet of back, you know, behind the scenes. Is it all full? Don't ask me that. <laughs> um yeah yeah there's stuff back there so that's that is the like that is the you know what's funny is there came a point when i realized that that might be my security blanket because keeping this place full and selling you know 50 to twenty thousand dollars a month in product like i always had this fear of running out and so like as long as there's stuff back there i'm probably okay now i'm oh. overcoming i'm i'm overcoming that and now i would just like it to be workspace and organized workspace and we're and we're actually moving in that direction um, and it's actually pretty well organized for what it is mm-hmm. um, but oh yeah no that space is full <laughs> yeah like how do, how do you make um with all the unique items and interesting items sure but how do you make since um in the in the best sense it being uh junk here junk lane over there Mm -hmm. how do you make it appealing like in terms of organizing how do you make it appealing to your casual you know shopper oh that's a great question we do our best um the donuts help the donuts the donuts (laughs) help the coffee helps you know i i a couple of things one i i really try to make sure that it's high quality with regard to materiality. Um, so plastic doesn't really belong here. Synthetics really don't belong here unless they're like super kitschy, right? Like if it's if it's grandma's moo and it's like, you know, like a nylon rayon blend, I'll probably let it in, you know, but uh, but it's, you know, but it also has its like th- one of the easiest ways to to make sure that what we have is decent is to um, is to say, please don't bring us plastic, right? Um, but as far and as far as the organization goes, it really does. I mean, I'm OCD. People will notice that it's not it's not diagnosed, but like you can tell that like I get a certain fascination out of keeping things where they belong. Um, and we do we maintain a, a degree of hyper organization that most people haven't seen before when it comes to secondhand stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you think about a Target or a Walmart, think about it. Everything that they have, they've got their stuff in very specific places. And, it, you know, you're not going to find these things here, there, 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 unless it's in this place in the aisle and then on an end cap, right? And so right. we're really trying to model a predictable assortment and a predictable um, um, and predictable locations, like predictable co-location for the product that's here. Um, 
a little crazy making, but we do it. So So what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? I'm going to start with the battles that I'm fighting and then we'll get back to the weapon of choice. Um, The battles that I'm fighting are consumption. Climate change is a big, huge one. Um, And I entered this battle specifically because when my daughter was born and I was aware of what we were doing to the planet, as soon as I became like as as soon as I became awake to to the impacts that were happening and started to understand what her life might be like, I knew that I couldn't look her in the eye if I didn't do something to fix what uh, to fix our like collective existential condition. So, um, which might be a bunch of hubris in some ways, but in the in the grand scheme of things, um, I believed that I had a duty and an opportunity to do that. Um, my initial weapon of choice was um, secondhand goods, um, and and that remains the weapon of choice. But I I got really focused a couple of years ago, and and wound up honing in on a very specific secondhand item, which is the paperclip. Um, and the paperclip is my weapon of choice because we all know what it is. We all run across them in our daily lives. Most of us don't give a shit about them because we haven't been taught to or we don't see why we should. Um, And yet when you understand the aggregate impact of all of the paper clips as treated by all of the people, um, you realize that there's a huge opportunity to change how we treat not just paper clips, um, but to alter our relationship with all of the existing things in our world. People know the terms thrifting and, and perhaps even junking. Are there any alternative terms or more like updated or correct terms for? Yeah. So um, secondhand shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the um, I think the one that gets misused the most is recycling. Oh, I like recycling things. Right. So they're shopping for things that already exist and they call it recycling. And I think the biggest term, and it's not about the shopping piece of it, it's about the treating the stuff piece of it is reuse and reusing things, right? So, and reusing things is choosing to purchase something that already exists, choosing to, you know, wash out that Ziploc, choosing to continue to wear the shirt that you got or the jeans that you got last year, because they still work and they still fit and they you know, a lot of water went into making them, right? So, um, so or choosing to borrow or choosing to lend. Um, those are all behaviors, or to rent, those are all behaviors that tie into reuse. But, um, but so thrifting is, is one of, you know, or vintage shopping or estate sailing or mm-hmm. tag sailing or garage sailing or any of those things are effectively part of or fall under an umbrella known as reuse. Sure. You know, many people see a, a business or small business and think, well, that person had a good idea and made it happen. Good on them or cool. They got that store. But what was the genesis? What fueled the process to open Junket that, you know, can you tell us about that journey of how you got here? (sighs) Can I? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So I was um, in September of 2008. I was um, eight months pregnant and married and, um, uh, and and pretty confident about how life was going to go. And by January of 2009, I was uh, a single mother and didn't see it coming. And um, the, right. Yeah. 
And the, the, the depression and anxiety and fear that came with that led to a 50 pound weight loss because when you, you know, you have a baby and then you, you are feeding, you know, two bodies instead of one and you're actually not eating um, and you're stressing and all that stuff, um, that leads to some pretty heavy stuff. And so I didn't, you know, I lost 50 pounds. I didn't have clothes that fit. I didn't have the money to buy the clothes. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to keep going back to my corporate job while this thing that was going on got figured out. So I went to the thrift shop and I bought a bunch of secondhand clothes and I actually went to what's known as the Goodwill outlet where they sell by the pound. And so I was a little girl size 12. I did not need, um, I didn't need to try stuff on. I could just look at it and be like, yep, those khakis will work. So I took all my old stuff to consignment, like the it had bad men- bad energy, bad memories, whatever associated with it at that point anyway, and mm-hmm. um, and bought that. Um, so and then as I started to heal, and the little girl size twelve didn't fit, I took that to consignment and didn't give it much thought. I was just kind of getting through life, and you know, like wearing my baby to daycare every morning, and then walking to work, and then repeating the reverse at night, and just kind of getting through. But one day I got, I went to the consignment shop, and I picked up a check, and. I had paid maybe 50 cents for a t-shirt that they sold for 10 bucks. And that $10, I got to keep 50% of that, which meant that I got $5. And $4 and 50 cents is like horseshit as far as dollars go. But 900% return on investment was enough to pique my interest and to help me see a potential path out of the circumstances I was in. So mm. I bootstrapped. I, I started finding, you know, I sold, sold more of my stuff via consignment. I started looking for more via consignment. I got I really saw how much was being wasted and got that's really when I was awakened to how much crap we're throwing away like collectively and started to learn more about that. And that's also when it became clear that I had an opportunity to do mission based, right? Um, like not religious mission, but like environmentally oriented work and to actually offer a solution. So I decided in about 2011 that what I wanted to do through this thing I was creating as a side gig was to um, create ease of access um, to high quality goods that hadn't been newly made for the sake of, you know, being an environmental solution. I didn't mm-hmm. know what it looked like. I didn't know that it was going to be retail. I was selling stuff on eBay at that point, And that was the option. So um, retail happened about a year and a half later when I had outgrown my house. I was trying to also, I was, I was also doing Airbnb to make ends meet. So I was bootstrapping all of this stuff. I had been laid off of my corporate job um, and actually had raised my hand to make it, you know, extra happen because I was like, I had the stuff I wanted to do and it worked. So, but, but by that point, like I had guests coming, I would have to shove all this stuff back into the, you know, drawers and everything else. And they would come and then it would pop back out and I'd do more. And basically it's like, you know what, it would be less risky if I just found a place that I could do this and maybe do a sale once a month. So I, so that I did a sale at my house, tried it. It worked and like an actual vintage sale at my house and then found this about six weeks later. And I've been going ever since. So I lived four blocks from here and it was something that had to be close. So have yeah. those ideas of, you know, makeshifting any type of financial progress for yourself um, been within you? Like just that that the ingenuity of, okay, we can we can, you know, the whole philosophy on reusable, but you know, did you ever have ideas uh at any point in your life to have a vengeance sale, have a garage sale, you know? Like. You know, that's a really good, really good question. So, because I was the kid who, um, like, late at night, 
like hanging out with my sister when we were supposed to be sleeping would make her play garage sale. You'd make her. I made she 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 wasn't too happy about it because like I was taking the pennies and she didn't necessarily want the stuff. But you know, I was seven, she was five. This is this is how it worked, right? Sibling power dynamics and all. So um so and you know and I my earliest memory of reuse is my mother literally fishing uh, a waffle maker out of the dumpster behind an apartment near our house. We used that thing. I mean, she probably still has it. Um, and so reuse was just part of, you know, like going, you know, like the cur- curbside recycling. You know, there were treasures to be found. I grew up, you know, like and and I was the oldest of five. My dad was blue collar. My mom was stay at home and money was tight. And so I started thrifting myself at age um, 14 when I realized that um, I could get gerbo jeans for three dollars a pair. <laughs> So, right. I know it was, I mean, that, that dates me obviously, but yeah, it was, that was pretty exciting. Everything that comes here has a story, some big, some small, and they continue after the items leave. Do mm-hmm. you ever get to know any of these stories? I, yeah. And I get to know some of them more intimately than others because we've started helping, um, helping a man named Tom do cleanouts after estate sales have ended. So he is a, he's basically his, his business card says trash hauler. Basically he'll let me into a house after the estate sale has happened. He's the one who's being paid to remove things, but he's being paid to throw them away. And so I'll go in and I trade my time for the things I can rescue and salvage and bring into the shop. But as a result, I get to see those things in their native, um, in their in their native spaces, right? Mm-hmm. So and and we'll take you know the last house we did, we did I think three or four truckloads of of product out of out of this house. And, and so, and I do have kind of a photographic memory or like that, those associations really stick for me. And so I know that a lot of the clothes that we have in this store now came from that house because the woman who had them was a compulsive shopper and hmm. she spent 30 years compulsively shopping and she had the money to do so. And so we've got products from the seventies and eighties with tags still on them now in the shop because that was after an estate sale where 70% of the content of that house sold. Mm-hmm. There was still so much in there that we got four useful truckloads and Tom still had two weeks worth of work basically. So, um, but yeah, so I know the stories behind it. Um, you know, a lot of times it'll come in from someone and they'll share a story. Um, I recently got to retell a story that was a fun one. So one of the first houses I cleaned out um, or helped to clean out was, um, was a couple um, or was, had, had been a couple, the, the woman who had moved out had, had deteriorated quite significantly in her, her elder years. And so the house had been a hoarding house, but, um, we collected and kept a lot of the pictures and were able to offer a lot of those pictures. And so John and Marie were the couple. John was long since passed. Marie had lived in that house until her children had decided that it was time to put her in a nursing home. But we we have pictures of John and Marie and their children and their parents and their family and and you know and the galas that John and Marie attended and the vacations that they took and um, and I spent so much time with those pictures. It was that was one of the first houses. So I was really tuned in and again had several truckloads and it was a pig in the python unlike one I had dealt with until that point. Um, and so we had, um, someone brought a picture of John and Marie that is, was still in the store up the other night and asked my, um, asked one of the team if 
we knew who, you know, they had found other pictures of this family in the collection. And do we know who they are and what this is? And well, yeah, it's John and Marie. Um, and it was neat to be able to share some of the same things that I've shared with you. And, um, you know, and, you know, they lived at X, you know, X intersection. Um, there were pictures of that house being built in the late 50s. There, mm. right. And so, and we, right. And so, like, the, what I love about it is that even as their family couldn't continue to value those things, we were able to value them and to help extend the story and the lives of mm. John and Marie mm. um, and that other people could appreciate them and take the stories with them as well. So, um, yeah. Wow. What's your relationship like with your patrons? We're known at, well, really, it depends on the patron. We've got the regulars that, that come in, um, you know, just to kind of check it out. And we've got, you know, funny, you know, just the, uh, the kind of the ongoing fun stuff. The newbies, I, I have to be quite honest, we, you know, we basically accost them when they come in with a smile and a, hey, how are you? And have you been here and have some donuts? And um, how did you find us? And, um, and here's what we're about. Um, sometimes, you know, I wonder if that's the best strategy, but it, you know, certainly lets them know what's going on and what they can expect. Um, what are you questioning about when you say you wonder if that's the best strategy? Um, are we too in their face? I don't know. You know, we don't know, but 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 I will say that we get props again and again and again for friendliness, for you know, for being welcoming, for people feeling like they belong, and so I'll say that that you know that piece is is the thumbs up, and just sometimes I wonder if um, I just hope we don't make people uncomfortable by being like, hi, you know, I'm Dory, mm. who are you? Have I met you before? Right? So um, that's that's kind of what I wonder, but but we do it, mm. and. Um, and so, you know, so that's what the, the newbies experience. Some love it. Some are like, oh, hi, you scare me. Um, you know, we're Minnesota here. People come up and down this. We're, we're on Minnehaha Avenue, which mm -hmm. is sometimes described as the Minnehaha Mile in South Minneapolis. Correct. So as far as those newbies go, you get foot traffic from people like essentially touring this neighborhood. Yes. Yep. And, and vintage stores. So you yep. have to like. Yep. Gauge that, right? Yep, absolutely. And it's, it's it's helpful to understand how they they found us, right? And and for me, part of it is is that this isn't just a vintage store, right? And so people come in with different expectations, and so compared to the others, exactly, yeah. I want to know if this was a word of mouth or if this was, oh, I just googled antique shops or what have you. But it's also an opportunity to let people know if they didn't find us because of the mile, to let them know that we're part of an ex an entire sustainable district. So yeah. that's that's my motivation. Also, is that is and that's an in to be able to kind of share a few things about why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters. So and um, when we first started co-marketing, it was six vintage shops. Um, I threw together a map and said, "Hey, we should do this. I mean, like we should do this together. We should invite others to join us." And so um, and there was you know the original name. I named it Secondhand Row, and that didn't go over super well with everybody. So we just so it changed, and and we we it's, it was a little too gritty. Huh. I, I was all for it, but anyway. Um, so um, so in Minnesota now, right? There's that. Um, but yeah, so um, as it got going, we're like, you know what? We this this is going to include more people. It's going to be more inclusive, but it's also going to be more forward looking and less trendy if we make this about more than just vintage shopping, because vintage shopping is on trend. But if we're going to actually have this sustain over the long haul, we need to be about more than that. And the sustainability angle is that's not going away. Climate change is not going away, you know, without some pretty concerted efforts. So 
Um, so sustainability was the angle we went after. And we've got 13 stores now between here and um, and 26th Street, so about, a, about two miles, um, that engage in reuse as part of their business models. So, But it's not all vintage shops. What is your relationship to the things you own? To the things that I own? Oh, goodness. Um, my relationship to the things that I own is probably best... <laughs> probably best defined or described by a statement that a friend said about me um, probably 15 years ago. He's like, Julie really loves her stuff. So <laughs> like I, I have, a, you know, an emotional connection to things of beauty and it may not be the things that everybody else likes, right? It, they may be imperfect, but I character, right? Quality, things that look good together, things that make it feel homey. Um, it's, um, that's the piece that like, I like to keep that around me. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that my relationship to my dishes is less than stellar. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, yeah. So the housekeeping kind of like when I'm running, like a lot of my energy for stuff happens here and it doesn't happen at my house, but, um, everything that I own with the exception of like underwear is secondhand. That is, has always been a little piece of my life, but has become a driving force over the course of the last several years. And as my awareness has, has grown and as this has, you know, become, um, become the you know, kind of the thing that I'm known for. Um, but like, why would you spend $18 on something when you can buy it for four and when it has that environmental aspect to it and when it has character and integrity and when it was made to last? And, I mean, like, so many reasons to appreciate the things that we already have. So, um, so my relationship with them is that I, I use them, I embrace them. I, when I'm done with them, I find a new home for them. Well, what's the frustration that collectively as a society we aren't pondering that question of why aren't we spending a fraction of what we actually are spending? Mm -hmm. What what like is there? What's the frustration? Of the fact that we as a society are not collectively asking that question. Oh, I mean, like, I just think that people are, are to a certain extent, operating in a matrix of here's what we do. This is what we always do. We got to be good for the economy. We got to buy this stuff. Right. And we've been we've been we've been we've also been um, habituated to lives that require convenience and that, oh, my gosh, I got to get this thing taken care of. Right. Um, but we've also only created systems for empowering and enabling people to throw things away and more recently to recycle things. But we don't have the systems, you know, Craigslist, free cycle, et cetera, aside. Right. We don't ha we don't actually have structure to make it possible to to collectively value the things that we have in a way that allows us to also find the things that we need with ease. Right. So um, right now, a lot of us know that it's fun to shop for vintage and we know reduce, reuse, recycle. But if you actually need to find that specific thing, um, that's really hard. Like if, you know, in a timely manner. And if, and, and when it comes to reuse, if I needed to buy one of those, that spinner, for example, secondhand, if I needed to buy one for the shop and I needed it now, I very well could pay more than if I just go and buy it new because uh, ease of access is not there. You know, I can, you know, I can just hop online and get it new. Yeah. But if I want one that has that character and integrity, it is going to cost more. And I think um, I think that's the, the, the lack of access and the lack of systems to support that is one of the biggest gaps. I think that people would um, engage differently and make different choices if it came to them or if it was easier to find or if it 
happened within the lives that they're currently living, if that makes sense. You're telling me you're not inviting Jeff Bezos to your dinner parties? Well, you know what's crazy? I don't invite Jeff Bezos to my dinner parties. I haven't done dinner parties in a while. But but <laughs> but if if we could mainstream reuse through Amazon as a channel, that's actually on my radar. Yeah. Right? So if we because that's where people are already shopping, right? They're actually already offering reuse, but a lot of the reuse that they're offering is this the um, you know, like the the new returns and things like that where it didn't package so yeah i've sold i've sold a lot of things on amazon as used Mm -hmm. and i think people pay a little bit more because they it has that front exactly i found i get like a premium because all this thing's on craigslist too this is a tangent but it's it's hard it's hard yeah and then it's hard for entrepreneurs and those of us who are doing these behaviors to know yeah and as an entrepreneur and a lot of this came out of you know, grossly unfortunate personal circumstances mm-hmm. what, you know, sent you down this journey. I'm sure you're thankful for that now. Gift of a do-over is what I like to the, call that. Yeah, you know, the gift of a do-over and then having certain catalysts, that being mm-hmm. a catalyst, the paper clip being mm-hmm. a catalyst. What mm-hmm. um, are you learning about yourself in the last five years? Well, I'm learning that retail isn't my end game. <laughs> and, and quite honestly, that there are, I there's I have work to do um, and it's not sorting stuff every day. So um, one of the things that I've learned is is and you were finding this that I've got a lot to talk about and it matters and it matters societally and that I should probably be doing more talking. Um, And and then the other piece is that. um, There are things that I've learned that more people need to know. and that I'm really motivated to help get, um, to help continue to create change. So um, I didn't realize the scope of what I signed up for mm-hmm. back in 2011. Really, you can get really buried in all this. Like we're literally in a basement right we're now. We're in a basement know? buried by stuff. Yep, we are. Um, and I, you know, so I'm learning that I'm, I mean, I am on, on an interesting level dealing with a lot of the same issues and challenges that, People are dealing with in other ways. You know what? Mm. How do I get rid of it if it doesn't sell? Is this does this make sense? You know, um, and and quite honestly, do I see myself in retail for the next 10, 20, 30 years? Probably not. But do I see myself enabling retail and enabling sustainable retail? That's where I'd love to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So like it's just like so and so and that's <clears throat> but the other piece I've learned is that we we chart our courses and we get to um we get to decide. Yeah. Um, when most people hear the word innovation, they think of Silicon Valley, technology, NASA, maybe architecture and the likes. But how does innovation play an important role in this trade? In this trade, innovation. Well, when are you talking about vintage or are you talking about the work that I'm doing? Or um, It's all tied in. I mean, yeah, the, the vintage and then obviously like other aspirations you have yeah, to make yeah, this yeah, a bigger yeah. thing. Yeah. So so for me, innovation is about recognizing what the existing systems need, scalability, profitability, right? Um, something that people can get excited about, something to, to promote. Um, and then using reuse as a creative constraint or design constraint to deliver profitability scalability viability to market so um my end game is um is to mainstream reuse 
to have products in, you know, basically to, to see traditional retailers say, yeah, we want this on our shelves mm-hmm. and to bring the solutions where they can do that. I want to know about your secret weapon. My secret weapon. This uh, junket junior shopkeeper. <laughs> I thought that might be coming. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, she's what started junket. And um, so so her name is Meridel, um, which is an old English nickname for Meredith. And it means joyous or mirthful. And, and she's nine now. She's nine. And yes, and she is a precocious soul. Um, she she runs her own um, enterprise out of the shop. She has a um, upstairs. Um, she's got the vending machine. And inside the vending machine, you'll find My Little Pony and, um, you know, birthday candles and things like that, that you could buy. So she is responsible for filling that machine and all that good stuff. But um, she has grown up in this environment. She was four when I opened the shop. And um, and so she'll answer the phone. She may not get the answer right, but she'll answer the phone. You know, <laughs> she, um, you know, like it's not uncommon to see her playing out in front of the shop. Um, she has she's been a muse and um and really i mean like i started the shop you know and this whole thing got going because i was trying to figure out how i could be a mother first and i knew that my corporate existence wouldn't make that possible so um she's she's a joy and um and she's hilarious and she knows what this place is about um and someday she's going to run it according to her so um which is cool so yeah, but she also has some really good ideas about DIY, so I'll send you videos. Yeah, she's got she's got some solutions for sure. <laughs> They're oh. kind of progressive solutions. <laughs> They're woke solutions. That's, they that's are. Awesome. So. <laughs> that's awesome. What's your favorite moment of a day here at Junket? There is the there is the moment where she's so this is my kid back to my kid. So she's old enough now where she takes she takes the bus home from school and it drops her off right around here. So when she comes tripping in the door at like three twelve, that's pretty awesome. Right. Um, (laughs) But um, I would say it's it's like in the morning when I, you know, when like just saying good morning to whoever is here opening the shop this day, you know, that day. So greeting Candace or greeting Jen and just kind of starting the day off on a high note um, is is pretty cool. Um, When like something really like really amazing has shown up here. Like, it's like, oh, my God, like, like being able to, like, really, like, share my fascination or share their fascination with this cool thing that just got here. Um, but I will also say that when somebody buys um, one of our items that is emblazoned, Namaste, motherfucker, it's like the best thing on the planet. Because, <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, I'm serious about that because that was one of those, like, it was a coping, like, it was a coping phrase during the divorce when things were awful. And it was helpful mm. to me, right? And it was always like, it would be so fun to put that on a t-shirt. It would be so fun to put that on a t-shirt. And it took a long time to get to the place where we could put it on a t-shirt. But now it's one of our best sellers as a towel. And there are people who are brave enough to wear it as a t-shirt. Not me. Um, but but um, to see something that not only you've conceived of, but that um, you've like brought into the world. And to have other people embrace that. Um, I mean, like that's that's... Um, and it's not just the towels, it's the store as a whole. It's, it's the ideas, it's all of it. It's mm. like being uniquely you and, and having that mm. be welcomed and embraced is you know, a pretty good thing. 
So talk about your relationship with artists and the artist community. I would like to forge a, a stronger relationship in the in the months and years ahead. The the store's relationship is we when we first got started we we brought in neighborhood artists um, to sell their stuff. So we have consigned consigned items mm-hmm. on hand here. Our goal is to be a, a resource for creatives, um, so for makers and things like that. And so and we are known for that, and we do do some of that. Um, the um, the biggest piece is we want to promote. I, I I will admit that I have I am motivated to promote um, the reuse aspect of things. So I support artists who are working in reuse mm-hmm. most heavily. Um, I also seek to help artists who aren't engaged in reuse to make that jump or that cutover, mm-hmm. um, and to provide ease of access to materials so that they don't have to go out and try and find them all over the place. Because it's kind of like the paper clips. Like if you had to go and like source 100 paper clips just to do your business day, you'd go a little nutso. And that's a real challenge for artists is like having access to that stuff, which would also explain why, you know, well, I guess I guess I should say that that's the case for full-time working corporate constrained artists, right? It's a, a slightly different deal, but finding finding the thing, finding the muse can be tricky. So um, a lot of what we're doing has to do with just supplying high-quality creative stuff that people can work with but yeah we I, the other piece is i should say about the artists though too is we do we do a, we've been hosting events here for um for years now where we we, we have an artist in residence who shows people whoever might want to come yeah. um how to use existing items um to do specific things creatively so last night we had a free class around making envelopes out of old like maps and old book pages and things like that and um yeah and bookbinding and things like that. So, and I'm seeing a lot of art around with the uh, the, the reuse of not just the fact that use this again in the sense of hope, hopefully some someone buys this, but even the the sign above the coffee mugs that says you know use them, buy them, or both. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That yeah. text is on a, a vintage map, scrap of yeah. a map. You know, and I was like, yeah. that's really cool. Right? Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and and one of our most popular pieces is actually. Um, um, you know, graphically designed quotations printed on um, pages from a dictionary. Mm. Um, and so, and that was that was something that I landed on, like when I first opened, I'm like, I wonder if people would buy like cool book art or if they would buy, like what, I wonder if they would. And so we tested it. It felt a little blasphemous to be selling individual pages. Um, the unprinted kind, like just the art in, and, and the reality is, but you know what? It's beautiful. You know, and and if we're doing the work to make them available, then it may, you know, then it makes sense. And if and if people appreciate them, that's that's what capitalism is. If they appreciate it, they'll buy it. Yeah. Um, great. Then we're adding value. But the um, the ones that we print on are, you know, I will not break a book to do this. We we operate in best and highest use. So, um, but what that means is that finding a broken dictionary at an estate sale, um, you know, I think of the old unabridged web unabridged Webster's. Are there like a thousand plus pages? Mm-hmm. I mean, a broken dictionary is worth several thousand dollars in sales to me. So, yeah. So it's oh, it's shit. right. So you think so it's we think differently about resources when we value them for their potential instead of we're going to recycle this thing or we're going to chuck it or it's broken, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to riff on that a little bit, that the idea that something does not have value because it's broken is why. I'm so excited to be partnering with Allsquare 
to the restaurant next door um, because um, the work that they're doing around um, criminal justice reform is about saying, you know what, just because you have a history, just because there may be imperfection there does not mean that you do not have value. You downsized your space for I downsized my space for enterprise that enterprise next door now. You got it. Yep. And that and that was um that was strategic. That was um I saw that opportunity to connect a dot yeah. um philosophically and like and like there's a lot of healing that our that our society needs to do right now. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of it has to do with redefining our relationship with stuff but also redefining our relationship with each other, right? And I think that once we can acknowledge imperfection and embrace imperfection in other things and other people, makes it a lot easier for us to accept ourselves yeah. where we're at. And folks next door at that restaurant, at the new All Square restaurant, soon to open, we're going to be able to acknowledge all of that, and there will be right. that healing component and at the same time, they're going to get gourmet grilled cheese sandwiches. I know. Nice, what? huh? That's I know. It's amazing. I know. We're super excited. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. What are you tired of hearing? I'm tired of hearing a couple things. Oh, I recycle. Great. <laughs> um, because that. Like the, with with that happy like look, I'm proud of myself. Tone. I'm tired of hearing, "Oh, you're for profit. So what are you going to do when I donate my stuff? What are you What are you doing that's of value?" Um, because there's a real disconnect between um, between for profit versus nonprofit, um, and there's a gap in awareness that 501c3 is a tax status and a tax status only. That's the distinction, and also because. One of the reasons I'm operating as a for-profit is because I believe that we're all accountable for not doing harm through commerce. Um, I believe it's important to do well by the planet, to do well by people, and that it's reasonable to profit assuming that everything is in balance. Mm -hmm. And that if that's not how it's happening, you probably shouldn't be in business. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to hear people be cynical about the fact that I'm for profit, even as I'm quite content to tell them what I'm doing, because as soon as they ask, I'm like, oh, paper clips, let's talk. So, um, but um, I would also say that um, I'm, I'm tired of hearing something else. And it's, um, and it's more, it's not that, it's not that I don't want to hear it. It's, it's that it's so, endemic of what's happening right now um and that is our generation you know and and others having to figure out what to do with all of the stuff in all of the attics and all of the basements and all of all of it and not knowing what to do and not having good answers and feeling helpless And knowing that we're losing, I mean, it's frightening to know how much is getting thrown away right now because we don't have ways to handle it. And it's in the hands of people that, you know, that are not equipped, that are in really difficult transitions, right? I mean, like mom has died or they've just moved dad to a nursing home or, right, or 
you know, they're, you know, people are overwhelmed by the burdens of a huge house and are like all of those, like people are having to deal with it at the worst possible times because we don't have systems and, um, and understandings about how to be responsible materialists, responsible consumers and what that ultimately means. Yeah. And that, that questioning of for profit, I mean, Hello, your dollars are helping fight these battles because. Right. Yes. And so and that's, you know, that's the piece that, you know, I guess I would say that there's one other piece that I, I, I struggle with a little bit. And that is that, oh, you're too expensive. Why are you so expensive? It's all used. And so and 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 that isn't to say that we're that expensive because there are other people who are familiar with the market are like, oh, my God, you guys are so reasonable. Right. And we're never going to get a sweet spot for everybody because mm-hmm. expectations are so different. But the reality is, is that. Um, what we're offering is products that come free of, you know, carbon emissions. They come free of human rights violations. They come free of, also, you know, resource depletion, right? You know, we may have had to wash something, but we didn't generate, five hundred, you know, 750 gallons of, of water in getting that pair of jeans onto the sales floor. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. 750 mm-hmm. gallons of water for a single pair of jeans manufactured. Oh, God. All right. Right? I'm done. Right? <laughs> I'm done. I mean, like, when, when we think about what's going on in California and we think about, you know, like, manufacturing is depleting a lot of those resources and we don't need it. So um, it's worth, so some of the things that are worth noting, cause I think we're going to find ourselves in a place sooner than later where, like, societally we're being challenged on this front is... Um, um, I want to say two African nations have now decided that they are no longer willing to accept um, imports of secondhand textiles from Western nations. Um, and that has been how Goodwill, Savers, et cetera, are making their money. Is mm-hmm. It's not at the stores. It's at the wholesale level where mm-hmm. they're exporting this stuff. It's been causing problems you know, in, in these countries and communities where it's devastated their own textile trades. Um, and those African nations are saying enough, no more 2018, 2020, they're going to stop allowing that in. So that is going to dry up that, that, you know, so, and that's going to, you know, basically it's going to create like, you know, textile constipation to use an interesting (laughs) word, right. In our country. Um, And then um, China has decided to do the same thing with any number of recycled plastics. I think they have 24 different materials. They've decided that they're not going to accept anymore. So again, our plastic, like, this is all, uh, you know, it's a commodity system. It's, we'll pay what for what. And that's another thing where our habits and our, you know, like, all of the things that we're just, like, recycling and not thinking about, mm-hmm. like, the systems that are currently profitable um, are going to become not profitable in those ways. So, and we have to reckon with that because it's our 310 million people that are throwing this stuff away. And it's, you know, we're so our, I guess I look at, you know, oh my gosh, the economy. Oh, you know, what are we going to do? We got to support the economy. We've got to buy things. It's like, no, actually, mm. we should be valuing what we have. We should be demanding different things. Um, but um, my other plug for reuse, though, is that like there's no infrastructure, which means that infrastructure needs to be created, which means that that is jobs and jobs and jobs and jobs and jobs that could be developed that are green jobs, that are actually creative jobs because you got to have an eye for, for you know, no. the aesthetic if you're going to be doing this. So, I, uh, you know, obviously this is like crazy tangent and 
all sorts of places. But so, well, yeah, it's great. It's great. I mean, offline, I'd lo- I'd love to get super cynical with you. Um, <laughs> but before we go down that road, that's not. I guess I, guess I want to ask. Um, currently, what art of any kind are you taking in that's giving you energy, giving yeah. you some hope in this world we're living in today? Oh my goodness. Um, so um, one of my vendors, um, his name is um, his name is Matt. He goes by Matt Resist, um, and he's been Matt Resist since long before mm, Resist, before, be- hashtag right, before hashtag Resistance, exactly. And um, and he makes um, he you know he makes lamps out of old pipes and cigar boxes, and um, and has been doing you know has been doing that for longer than junk has been around. Um, one of the things I I love about him and about working with him as an artist is that as soon as I said, hey, we actually want to go from just made, like as far as our product, made using secondhand to actually primarily comprised of, we'd like you to, you know, would you be willing to source more of your material secondhand? Can we help you do that? Um, and not only did he do that, but he actually has taken that on as part of his platform as well. And he's communicating about it and, nice. and is explaining it. And it's like, that's the sort of impact that I love. Um, awesome. And then something that is not coming through the door, but something that he's doing that I think is really neat is he started picking up at, um, um, bus tickets, right? The old the yeah. the transit cards, and he's writing poetry and small messages on them using an old old school typewriter, and it's just just the the process and the 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 way it continues. There, there's just there's just something about the ideas that he's putting out there that are really fascinating. We're talking to Julie. Uh, founder and owner of Junket, Tossed and Found, today, the day after Election Day. So since a lot of people here around the country, but we're here in uh, Minneapolis um, in the Twin Cities, a lot of people yesterday voted their values. We want to keep encouraging people to shop their values. Uh, how do people follow you online, social media, what have you? Yeah, um, we're, we're on Facebook and a lot of our content happens on Facebook. So just, you know, do a search for Junket, Minneapolis, and we'll show up. Um, our handle on a bunch of the other um, the other venues, so Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, is at Shop Junket. Uh, Julie Kearns, um, the maker, the creator of all this beautiful um, existence, yes, yeah. of Junket Tossed and Found. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed chatting with you as well. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much. We had such a great time sitting in Junket Tossed and Found and chatting with you. Yes, absolutely. I'm uh, definitely grateful to Julie. This has been a special menu production. And as always, we want to hear from all you artists out there. What is your weapon of choice? And we want to hear from everybody. What art are you taking in that is recharging you, that is helping you go along and fight the good fight? You can send your answers to those questions to weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Hit us up, y'all. We want to hear from you. Definitely want to hear from y'all. We we are listening. Uh, What you got going on this weekend? You got anything fun happening? Yeah, this weekend I'm going to um, a talk hosted and book signing hosted by uh, Sean Sherman. Oh, that's the, uh, He's the, the chef. Yeah, yeah, the sous chef, S-I-O-U-X. Um, he wrote. He just came out with his book, The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. So yeah, he's got a book signing and a chat at Common Good Books. 
this Saturday in St. Paul from 12 to 2. So I'm definitely going to hit that up. Man, that sounds interesting. Uh, maybe I'll be able to make that. And hopefully, Andrew, if I know you, you're not just going as a fan. I'm going to try to get him on the show, too. All right. That's not so hopefully about. our listeners can look forward to that. Dang, that'd be great. That'd be great. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to hit that up for sure. Yeah, what about you, Tommy? What do you got going on? Um, I don't think I'm catching any live music or anything this weekend. I'm probably, you know, I'm feeling good. I've been in a nice slow flow of writing, a lot, doing a lot of writing uh, recently. And it's kind of got my mind off, uh, you know, during this holiday season, you know, whatever that is, you know, whatever to make of that. But yeah, I got hit with this huge car repair last week. It was, I, it was just freak accident. Not a car accident, but just something happened to my car and I had to drop a lot of dough that I didn't really have. And I, the reason that's got me down is less about what I had to pay to fix the car. I was actually pretty excited um, in whatever way that I do celebrate uh, my friends in terms of holidays. I was, I was like, man, I'm buying Christmas presents for friends this year or, you know, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. I was, I was going to get gifts for friends this year and I was putting and I was feeling pretty good about that, but after this car repair, sorry y'all, <laughs> y'all ain't getting shit this year. Car but I still up. love you. <laughs> but I still love you. And we love everybody who listens. You know that. So we want to thank you for tuning in. Keep listening. Keep telling your friends about it. We need, you know, we're just independent here. We need that word of mouth to do some good for us. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, we'll leave you with, you know, that junket, toss and found. You should watch that YouTube video. It's a great song. It's a cool little video. Uh, the video on YouTube is called A Day in the Life at Junket. Check it out, and we'll leave you with some of that song right here. And don't don't and don't forget, if you are in Minneapolis, get on down, get your butt down to Junket Toss and Found and find you some good reusable goods. Help the earth, because that's what you'll be doing when you spend your dollars in there. And if yes. you're ever visiting Minneapolis, get on down to Junket Toss and Found. I don't need to tell you no more. Just listen to the song. So get out the door We got something you're looking for at Junket It doesn't matter if it's tossed or found We've got the coolest things around at Junket Mama, baby, or daddy too We have stuff for your whole crew at Junket Ring. We got pretty much everything at Junket. We got ties and scarves and purses too. Vintage shirts to make you look old school. Candles and key rings that blow your mind. Old board games you never thought you'd find. Vinyl records or an old suitcase. Antique clocks to help you keep the pace. Coffee mugs and hip lamp shades. We've got all that stuff in spades at Junket. Junket. The mini high mile is a dream come true. You're gonna find something new to you at Junket. Don't 
Donuts and coffee are here for you. Best thing to do is combine the two and dunk it. Junk it.